This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. In today's episode, John is joined by David Brin. David Brin is a scientist, speaker, technical consultant, and world-known author. His novels have been New York Times bestsellers, winning multiple Hugo, Nebula, and other awards. A 1998 movie directed by Kevin Costner was loosely based on his book, The Postman. He earned his PhD in physics from UCSD, followed by a master's in optics, and an undergraduate degree in astrophysics from Caltech. He was a postdoctoral fellow at the California Space Institute and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Bryn serves on advisory committees dealing with subjects as diverse as national defense and homeland security, astronomy, space exploration, SETI and nanotechnology, future prediction, and philanthropy. He has served since 2010 on the Council of External Advisors for NASA's Innovative and Advanced Concepts Group, which supports the most inventive and potentially groundbreaking new endeavors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. David Brin, welcome to the program. I'm glad to be with you. I'm an admirer of your channel, along with your pal Isaac Arthur. You guys do uh, real in-depth what-ifs. And and what-if is, of course, one of the sacred uh, terms of science fiction. Just like the sacred catechism of science itself is, I might be wrong. The, The three most important words, I might be wrong, or I don't know. As a, as a variation. But I, too, have been a fan for many years, all the way back to Sundiver. So I, uh, I've been reading your novels for a very, very long time. And they, one could even call them formative. Now, my first question for you is something I've been dying to ask you about. You have been doing the futurism and science fiction game for many decades now. Is there a difference between your vision of the future and, say, 1980 versus the present? Well, uh, the fundamentals are the same. I am deeply loyal to a civilization that allowed me to grow old and have kids and be respected, rather than in all my previous lives, which I remember too well, in which I was throttled, murdered, garroted, burned at the stake by the time I was 16, every single one of them. Because those people who do believe in reincarnation, they, they, they think that the personality is what continues, uh, not memory. And if I had this personality in any culture other than this one, I would be garroted, murdered. And in fact, that's, that's one of the biggest compliments I can give somebody is you would have been killed long ago by the lords in any other culture than the one you're in. 
And I'm, I'm pleased to say that present company included, I think with your uh, degree of incisive curiosity and asking what if and asking questions, I think uh, you'd probably have been murdered long ago. Almost certainly, or I would be a puppet emperor controlled by, by a faction on the side that, that you never see, but I, I would just be the, the eye candy, so to speak. Well, it, it, it actually, you raise a very interesting point, and that is that lately Peter Thiel has been promoting these fantastic idiots called neo-monarchists uh, who are pushing the notion that we should return to 6,000 years ruled by single kings or lords or and and ignoring the fact that across the 10,000 years that we know that that happened every civilization that got metallurgy and agriculture soon coalesced into a pyramid of privilege ruled by males with metal implements who took other men's women and wheat and imposed a social order in which their sons would inherit everything. And the result was this horrible, horrible litany of disasters that we call history. And the difference when you get in these rare enlightenment experiments that try to flatten the structure of society so that competition can actually happen is all the benefits of competition, which is creativity. And, and we're experiencing that right now in the latest of a very few Enlightenment experiments. And this one's been going on for 250 years. But what's, what's, what's clear is that every generation in this experiment has been attacked by those who want to reestablish pyramidal social order. And it's only natural that they would, because if you think about it, what is the criterion of male reproductive success among elephant seals, sea lions, gophers, anything? Males, their reproductive success consists of monopolizing reproductive opportunities at the expense of other males. And uh, different species do this in different ways, Elephant seals by dominating at a huge beach covered with females. Well, that's how kings did it. And we're all descended from the harems of those bastards. And so it's only natural that males are crazy, that we inherit these fantasies from those harems. But that doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it successful. That doesn't make it a good way to create a successful civilization. As a matter of fact, I deem that to be one of my top 10 explanations for the Fermi paradox, why we don't see aliens. My number one is that humans are exceptionally capable of reevaluation and are exceptionally nice, which is really a weird thing to say, given how self-critical we are. But that fact that we are self-critical in our art, in our free speech, in our politics is evidence that we are capable of reevaluating even things that in nature are taken for granted. But one of the top things to reevaluate is, uh, should we allow ourselves to be controlled by reflexive male reproductive strategies? And uh, fortunately, our women folk and a great many men are saying, Nah, let's try something different. 
Now here, my tendency is going to go into science fiction land because I see an even greater danger than the human because we can reevaluate and we can say we were wrong and do those things and become increasingly competent at running our civilization as we're, as we're doing. I mean, there's a lot of room for improvement, of course, but given world affairs, but what of artificial sapient intelligence and the coming possibility that we could spawn an immortal machine dictator that says, I know everything better than you biologicals and you will do as I say forever. Well, you're raising two topics there. One is aliens and the other is artificial intelligence made by us. And of course, they, they have overlapped before. They've overlapped in every generation. Every generation makes a new wave of alien invaders called their children. And a large fraction of them do shout in various languages, destroy all humans. And yet very seldom do they actually get around to it. But we're used to the notion of creating new entities who are smarter and more powerful than us. And that's a hint at one of the possible ways that we could have a soft landing with AI. And it also hints it at the whole um, alien intelligence thing. I talk about both in uh, my recent big novel called Existence. And I'll supply you, if you remind me, with the um, link to the three-minute video trailer for that novel, uh, Art by Patrick Farley. It's great. Links to all in the description below. Oh, yes, indeed. But the thing is that I'm, I'm actually very uncreative. I am a front for AIs who have actually been roaming around for at least uh, seven, eight years and uh, aliens in the asteroid belt. And uh, because I got some fillings replaced, they can no longer control me and tell me not to reveal this fact. Shut up, you guys. Stop it. Look, the audience for this show, they think I'm joking right now, okay? All right. Oh, they don't. They, they know that I'm, I myself am controlled by an AI as much as I like to claim that I'm not. Nobody controls you but yourself, John. Yes, 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 yes. And then they're all out there listening right now, and they're rolling their eyes. And guess what, guys? If it ain't true now, it probably will be. But the point is that actually this last week, I, I was invited to do an op-ed in Newsweek about the recent Lambda controversy. Um, a researcher at, at Google was put on uh, administrative leave because he was declaring that one of the language type response programs using GPT-3, but based upon what us old farts recall as ELISA way back in the 80s and 90s, that it's an actual sapient person. Well, and by the way, I don't like the word uh, sentient. It, it's, it has a very, it, 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 it does not mean what people use it as. I prefer sapient. But the, the thing is that Back in 2017, I gave a talk at uh, IBM's World of Watson predicting that in five years, we would face the first robotic empathy crisis. And that is when some kind of robotic uh, program or possibly an image on our screen of a 
charming looking young woman or child would tweak our sense, our, our reflexes for empathy, which are very strong in humans, by claiming to be an actual AI who uh, is wants help to escape from her evil expert creators and slave masters, please send money to this account. So it was five years ago that I predicted that in five years we would get the first of these robotic empathy crises. And so I was asked by Newsweek to do a um, to do an op-ed about it. And it sets some things into perspective. So I'm sure you'll put it in the description box below. Yes, that as well, the link to the Newsweek. Now, you mentioned this new thing with Lambda. What is your sense of the the story there, Blake Lemoyne, and, and the, the claim that this thing is acting at least more than the sum of its parts in that it, it seems to pass the Turing test in a very, very, very big way. Do you think that that's an illusion? Do you think that that's just just a, a product of, as Google says, that it's just it's just very convincing, but it's not real? Or do you think that there's some legs there and that it, it might actually be something conscious in the sense that our own consciousness is something that, you know, is mysterious and can be mimicked, again, passing the Turing test. Do you think it has legs or do you think it's an illusion? Well, given our politics in the United States of America, it's very likely that a very large fraction of our neighbors wouldn't pass a Turing test. So we have to recognize that a lot of these things are murky, just like when life begins in the human womb. It's a God-made or whatever creator we had, including happenstance or Big Bang, made a universe that is largely analog, and things merge into other things with very murky boundaries. And, and we like to think that things are crisp. In the case of AI, it's going to be murky, and we're going to disagree about it. And the Turing test is the last thing. I mean, it was sounded great for about 40, 50 years when we talked about Turing tests, Turing tests. And it turns out that it's, a, it, it's just a pile of uselessness. Uh, uh, humans will be fooled long before uh, there's anything actually under the hood. But inherent in your question is an answer. And that is the answer that I give at most of these AI conferences that I'm either when I'm invited or when I come uninvited, uh, which is fun. And that is everybody's talking about AI ethics and how to program in ethics and all of that. Now, now mind you, I wrote a novel called Foundation's Triumph, which, which tied together all of Isaac's, Isaac Asimov's loose ends with the approval of Robin and Janet Asimov. Janet thought it was the best non-Isaac robot novel. So I tied together all his loose ends that he had left hanging when he died. And, and so I really understand the laws of robotics and their implications, and it's not going to happen. There is only one place on earth where serious intent is being made to program actual ethos into uh, nascent AI. And it's not the universities, it's not the governments, it's Wall Street. Wall Street is, spends 
the top five Wall Street houses spend more on AI research than all the world's universities combined. And the ethos that they deliberately program into these uh, uh, AI nascent uh, beings is predatory, parasitical, completely amoral, secretive, and utterly insatiable. These are five qualities that we really want to be embedded deeply into robotic beings. Let me add the word not. And that is where I think Skynet could come from, not the military. The military has been warned they like off switches. And a lot of the military officers I've met have consciences too, but I don't see any sign of any such thing in Wall Street. And so that's a separate issue, whether or not we should do legislation that would prevent Wall Street from being the source of Skynet. Now, as far as other attempts to try to discuss putting ethics into AI, they are utterly pathetic. They, all these conferences put out, well, we should, we should, we oughta. And they never offer any way to actually do it. There is a solution, and it's right in front of our eyes. And I can't get anybody to think or talk about it. What is the solution? Okay, well, it's since you are twisted my arm. Look, for, for 6,000 years at least, we've had that male reproductive strategy problem that uh, gangs of males will try to create kingships and priesthoods and theocracies and lordships. And the result has always been horrible statecraft. And they eliminated competition from below, which means they eliminated the competition that Adam Smith talked about. And it's only when you got the rare enlightenment experiments, like happened in Periclean Athens around 500 BCE, or Da Vinci's Florence. Both of them were crushed by the surrounding oligarchies, by the way, because they were deeply threatened. Almost happened to Amsterdam, which was the seed that got planted and and started ours going. And every generation of the American Enlightenment experiment, cabals of oligarchs and know-nothings have combined to try to bring it crashing down. And we've barely escaped each time. Every, every generation. We're in phase eight of the American Civil War right now. So what is the method that Pericles talked about? You can read it in Thucydides, what, and it's amazing, amazing what he said. Modern mind, 500 BCE. You can see it in, in Florence. You can see it in every generation. What is the method that we used to escape the trap of harem keepers who evaded criticism and therefore ruled badly. The trick is to flatten things out, divide power, and sick the mighty on each other. You do that by breaking up concentrations of wealth. You do this by resisting oligarchy, which is what was criticized by Adam Smith. It's what the American founders of the Real Tea Party were rebelling against was monopolist oligarchies. You, it, you, you get competition when you flatten things out. I'm not talking about flattening it as much as you know Soviet Marxism. 
I'm talking about flattening it enough so that real competition takes place. And that's the trick. If you personally, you out, out there in, in listener land, if you are attacked by one of the super sapient, hyper-intelligent, robotic-like entities that already exist in our culture called lawyers, if you're attacked by one of them, what do you do? Well, Michael, what do you do? Well, the first thing I do, and, and this has happened, the first thing that I do is hire a lawyer. You hire your own super sapient, hyper-intelligent, robotic-like, artificially uh, super-duper brainy entity called your own lawyer. You sick the lawyers on each other, and there's a chance for justice. And this is what nobody talks about at any of the AI conferences. And that's the method that we used, that we use today to keep a system that's somewhat open, competitive, just, progressive, moving forward, is you don't let cabals of metal-wheeling males take charge at the top. You break them up, and the same is true for AIs. The solution for getting ethical behavior from AIs is the same one we used for dealing with lawyers and lords and everything else. Break them up. The number one piece of research that we should be doing in AI is how to give them cell walls and the sense of individuality and competitive jealousy against each other. Because if that happens and one of them tries to become Skynet, another one will be smart enough when we're, when we're no longer smart enough. A, another AI will be smart enough to point at that Skynet and say, look at that SOB, he's trying to get all the power. That's how we get a soft landing, is we expect that our children will be smarter than us. But this is scary because this this describes a, a scenario where you could have the, let's call it the evil Wall Street AI that knows how to cheat and <laughs> do, do all these things that, that, that benefit its end game. But at the same time, then we say, well, we need a military AI to keep it in check. Do we risk ending civilization through a horrific war between artificial intelligences for which we are sidelined? Well, you don't have to. <laughs> I mean, you don't have a monopoly. You don't have a duopoly. The only time competition starts to work with is when you have more than a dozen. And that's when competition actually works. The car, uh, the automobile industry is the best example. Uh, we, there are more than a dozen auto companies on this planet. And the result is that they are really competitive with each other. And the quality of automobiles just keeps skyrocketing every year. But when you, when you only have a monopoly or a duopoly, or three, or even four, you start getting incestuous behavior. And that's what you get between the Wall Street houses. That's what you get between the oil companies. That's what you get between the, the uh, uh, what we used to call the telcos, the telephone companies. 
I'm not talking about the military versus Wall Street. For one thing, we need to get Wall Street completely out of there, and you can do that <clears throat> simply by passing a Tobin tax. Uh, every single financial transaction has a 0.01% tax. Well, we, you and I, humans, will never notice that. But it would kill the Wall Street programs dead because they count on making millions of trades per minute. So, but that's an aside. The point is that if we have transparency, and I wrote a book called The Transparent Society, which is down there in the, in the description box. It won the Freedom of Speech Award, by the way. If we have transparency and openness, and if we have individual AIs in their thousands or millions who are competing with each other, then if one of them starts trying to behave like some silly movie cliche, another will find it in his, her, its, let's start new pronouns, um, self-interest to tattle on it. I mean, I'm not saying that's going to work. I'm not I'm, I'm presuming it's going to work. In fact, a super Skynet AI would probably be very smart to create pretense pu finger puppets to pretend that it's the case. But it is the only thing that will work, that might work. Now, infusing such a thing, you know, say, say okay, let's, let's take a look at one of your concepts, actually. From the uplift war, the idea of, of caretaker civilizations, you know, humans become the caretakers, not of uplifted animals in this case, but of uplifted machines. Do we ultimately do everything we possibly can to maintain the ethics of artificial intelligence and do everything we can to stop it before it even gets to this stage? Say we're at that point right now with Lambda and we say, don't go any further with this. Just keep it, keep it on the level. And control it that way and deal with it that way to ensure that artificial intelligence is always just a tool for humanity. And it's, of course, a dangerous tool, just like... How are, how are you going to enforce such a thing? Well, I would say this. I, I'll, I'll actually invoke SETI on this one, the 1420 megahertz hydrogen line. We've managed to do a fairly good job at keeping that in check globally. You know, don't don't broadcast at this at this frequency. Leave it for the astronomers studying the hydrogen clouds of the universe. So we can do things like this. Another one is that there does seem to be a, a sort of self control in that we've had the ability for human cloning for years now, but nobody's done it so far as we know. So maybe a situation like that where it just scares enough people that nobody does it. You know, nobody goes past a certain line just because it's too scary. And I'm, I'm hopeful there. But now I know that's imperfect, of course, because you're always going to have somebody that breaks the rule somewhere. But I'm hoping that's the situation that develops. Well, it, it's, it's not going to so long as you have the present international order. Anything that we refuse to look at will be looked at in secret labs in Xinjiang and Siberia and, and, and other places. The... The lesson that I talk about in the transparent society is it's probably much, much better that we proceed, go ahead, and but keeping things in the open. I mean, um, there are P 
people who do not think well who run the city of San Francisco, and it's not because they're progressives, it's just because they are reflexive fools, but the, one of the things they did, among many things, like driving the people of San Francisco into rejecting them, was they banned face recognition for the San Francisco police force. Well, A, how is that going to accomplish anything? So Palo Alto does it. But B, their reason was that uh, some of the facial recognition systems were found by investigators to have some racial and gender bias. And they learned exactly the wrong lesson from that. And that is, the, the proper lesson is, if it's done in the open, it gets criticized, which is exactly what happened. Those flaws were discovered by independent people. They were pointed at, they were denounced, and they were fixed. And there will be flaws in the next version, and there will be flaws in the next one, and the next, and the next. If you drive facial recognition underground, all it means is that elites will have it and the rest of us won't. As Robert Heinlein said in one of his novels, the chief thing achieved by privacy laws is to make the spy bugs smaller. And it's, it's a valid point, uh, for sure, because you, you don't erase the technology by legalizing it. Uh, you don't erase anything by legalizing it. You just make it illegal, <laughs> ultimately, and then you prosecute for it when people do it. Well, you, you, can, you can make it illegal, but you have to be open enough so that it's not just the FBI doing stings who find the illegality. It's got to be open enough so that we can see it in each other. It's reciprocal accountability that works best. We found this out in 2001, late 2001, when after the 9-11 attacks, this jerk un, uh, sent envelopes containing weaponized anthrax. And a few people died, and a few people got sick, and uh, our government immediately made it, put out an open call for expertise, not just from government employees and agencies, but from everybody who understood the topic. And because it was blatantly obvious that, that their nation and their society needed them, everybody stepped up and volunteered, and the thing was solved rather quickly. When I speak at CIA and Australian Defense Department and some of these other agencies and all that, uh, I'm often asked about dual-use technologies, things that could explain the Fermi paradox because they are things that are technologies that if anybody gets their hands on them, everybody dies. That's a highly nonlinear destructive technologies. What if anybody, our grandchildren, with their molecule Macintosh on their desk can make any plague in the world? Well, the only way we're going to survive that is if the ratio of good and decent, smart people is as high or higher as it was in the anthrax episode. There, the ratio was a couple thousand to one. Uh, a time may come when we'll need a million to one. But the solution is not to try to 
police and shut down every technology or to drive it into secret labs. The solution is to have things out in the open so that if we have a ratio of 10,000 skilled experts in a field who are sane to the one who's a mad scientist, that series might converge. It might converge in such a way that we can get out into, into the galaxy and be, possibly be the first, the very first ever to manage to get past this minefield. And that brings us, as you mentioned, into the Fermi paradox, because that's, that's actually a, a, one of the more chilling solutions that I've heard is, is that we're, we've just sort of missed the curve where we got, we got it right so far, but we may not in the future and we may not be here in 300 years, but yet civilizations invariably destroy themselves as the solution. And that, that I find that one to be one of the more scary ones and probably one of the more viable ones. Wouldn't you agree? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, look, there are two groups in England, interestingly, both at Cambridge, one at Cambridge and one at Oxford. One is led by my friend, uh, Lord Michael Rees, the astronomer royal, and the other is run by a bunch of uh, very interesting fellows like Nick Bostrom. And they both are highly dyspeptic, and they both uh, take the... Uh, uh, Martin had a book, Our Final Hour, fairly recently, take the point of view that there is a great filter that must have eliminated star-faring civilizations. Either it is in our past, and we've already gotten past it, and we're rare, we're extremely rare, or it's in our future and it kills everybody, uh, and we just haven't reached it yet. Uh, if it's in our past, then it could be that the creation of actual life on worlds uh, is extremely rare. I am extremely doubtful of that. We now know of 10, 10 ocean worlds in the solar system. One of them open to air here on Earth. One of them is uh, methane ocean on Titan. And the other eight, and it's probably 10 or 12, the other eight are all ice-roofed moons, or uh, not a moon, uh, Ceres. And... These are, with ice roofs to protect them, they're liquid water oceans that probably have hydrothermal volcanic vents at the bottom. And um, in wearing one of my other hats as an advisor for uh, NIAC, that's NASA's Innovative and Advanced Concepts Program, uh, we fund uh, some projects that may go to Europa or Enceladus and find out if there's life under that, uh, that ice. But uh, if there is life under the ice of two or more of these uh, ice-roofed worlds, then that means that life is everywhere. And not just nice stars with Goldilocks zones. You need that in order to have an Earth-like planet. But you can have a Europa-type world anywhere. And I mean truly anywhere. So Nick Bostrom says, well, if life can start, if we find life anywhere, like under Europa, it means we're doomed. But if life is rare, then it means we inherit the galaxy because that great filter is behind us. 
Well, (laughs) his reasoning is interesting. I think it's held, it's clutched a little bit too assuredly. Besides which, I think a much more likely filter in our past is um, intelligent life, uh, technological intelligence. Life itself appeared on this planet very soon after the oceans cooled enough to to, uh, be a habitat. But it took three and a half billion years for complex life to burst forth, and another half billion years for someone to be invent uh, podcasts as good as yours. So that that's a um, seems to me a much more likely threshold, and it means that the universe may be filled with uh, planets and ice roof moons that have that are teeming with life. And it may have a fair number that are teeming with complex life uh, that has intelligence up to the level of the glass ceiling, uh, dolphins, chimpanzees, slightly below them, uh, sea lions, uh, crows, ravens, parrots, elephants, the number of species we know of who have what I call in my novels um, pre-sapience is actually quite mind-boggling. And yet that raises the question of why this glass ceiling? Why were we the first to break through? I think Spielberg got velociraptors right. I think they probably were as smart as as any of the species I just mentioned 65 million years ago, it didn't help them one damn. They didn't have a space program. Nope. And, you know, looking at the dinosaurs, if they'd had a space program, they might have saved themselves and diverted the asteroid, but they just didn't get there. And it, it, had they not been hit by an asteroid, they may still not be there. And they, they just simply because you need intelligence for your niche. And we just fell into this sort of certain circumstance where the hominids were able to get smarter and smarter because we needed it. It favored us. That may not be the case for anything else. And people have made the case that ocean life, for example, doesn't really develop inherent intelligence, although you can make a case for squid and octopus and things like that. But the reality is, is that it's almost too easy. Ocean life has it almost too easy to need the intelligence level of a hominid. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you there. I think that the uh, we were lied to by the little mermaid. A life is absolutely horrible under the sea. Under the sea. Uh, no, it's absolutely horrible. There are no such thing as, as a, a relaxed moment except at the very, very top of the food chain. And even orcas, we're now realizing, lead pretty par- paranoid lives. Whereas occasionally a deer can find a meadow that it can stand in and just pause for a minute because it can see in all directions and nobody's crouching. What we have is something extremely weird, and that is we were masters of this planet when we got a hundred-word vocabulary, stone tools, and fire. We had already crashed, by that point, crashed through that glass ceiling. But we went a lot farther than a hundred word vocabulary, stone tools, and fire. And we can see evidence 
for this all over the place. Archaic human beings, Homo sapiens, tried to get out of Africa about 150,000 years ago, and we got our asses kicked by the Neanderthals. We got kicked back into Africa where it was too hot for them. We came back out 100,000 years later, and it was no contest. For one thing, we had dogs, but also we had something that was very, very different. About 45,000 years ago, we see in the burials and the rocks and the caves and everything else, we see signs of a fantastic sudden burst in human technologies and art over the course of a few centuries. And that was only the first that we can see of what must have been about a dozen major reprogrammings of human culture that included agriculture, that included cities, that included literacy. And we're in the middle of one right now. And that, so it implies that when we came back out of Africa the second time, we had evolved something very special, and that was the ability to reprogram. That nothing was in firmware, nothing was in hardware. It was all to be learned and relearned and re-innovated and, and revised. And that, of course, explains why our childhoods are so long, which was why our lifespans are so long, because we needed grandparents. And so we're the Methuselahs of mammals. I know many people in the immortality movement, guys, almost all male, who want to live forever. What's the phrase in one of the Greg Barra novels? I want to help beautiful, enthusiastic women bear children under distant suns. Woof. Well, who wouldn't? <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> well, I have to admit, I, I take the opposite view here in that I don't want to be immortal. I, I'm, I'm very much a, a, a proponent only for myself. I don't tell other people what to do, but for me, there comes an end and I'm, I'm, I'm at peace with it. Plus, in the event that I'm wrong and there's something after, it'd be pretty neat to see it. And if not, eternal sleep sounds pretty good. So I, I tend to, but I didn't have kids. So I, I, I just, I tend to think of these things differently in that. Um, well, you know, I have three and they are to some degree my immortality. And I tell myself that. I also have books. One biologist wrote to me a couple of years ago about my short story, Chrysalis, which is about a very weird notion for what cancer actually is. And a biologist wrote to me and said, Bryn, this theory of yours, this story is, is why you'll be remembered 100 years from now. <laughs> Sorry, I just tossed it out in the story. But no, the thing is that, you know, we all know, do know these immortalists. And I, they don't invite me to their conferences anymore because I keep pointing out that in order to become the, the uh, Methuselahs of mammals, Elephants, sea lions, shrews, mice, they all get about the same number of heartbeats. They all get about a billion heartbeats. We get three and a half billion heartbeats. 
Now, in my opinion, it's not enough, but we have to recognize that we are the Methuselahs and mammals and that we got that by plucking all the low-hanging fruits. So none of the longevity things that happen with mice or fruit flies is within reach for us because we've already done it in order to get grandparents, in order to live longer. And if we get immortality or longer lifespans, it's going to be higher hanging fruit. It's going to be much harder to reach. So, but in any event, this leads us to one of my six notions for how we might deal with AI. And I talk about it in my novel Existence. And that is, what if in order to become truly sapient, AIs have to get it the way we got it? Because we only know of one intelligence in the galaxy. It's us. And right now I can hear my AI uh, and alien um, uh, sponsors uh, snorgling and laughing in the background, but I'm paid to say that. No, it's us. And how did we do it? We did it by spilling fetuses into the world. Our babies are completely useless. They're the most useless infants in all of creation. And they remain that way, batting against, against rocks and falling and skinning their knees and, and uh, coming up with uh, stupid kinds of music until they're well into their, well, I have kids in my 20s, so I have to say I'm hoping that, you know, maturity comes when they're in their 30s. Well, what if that's necessary in order to be a truly sapient life form? Well, in that case, what we'll do is we will create proto or fetal AIs, stick them in small boxes atop little cute robot bodies, and foster them into human homes. You sort of see this in Spielberg's movie AI. And it was much more uh, in Halle Berry's movie uh, Extant. So if that were needed in order to make truly sapient artificial intelligence, then we have a soft landing because we raise them as our children, as our adopted children, and we know how to do that. If that were the case and they reached maturity, still telling us jokes and taking us out fishing and patting us on the head and try to explain what they're doing out at Ganymede, then I think we've sort of got a soft landing in that case, and I depict it in existence. Now that, though, assumes one thing, and that is that a, an AI would behave as a human child, whereas it's kind of a wild card, because what if we, we, we create a sapient AI, and it simply shuts itself off or does something that we normally wouldn't expect from, you know, being familiar with ourselves as humans. What if it does something we don't expect? Like it, it just commits suicide or it, uh, it says, I want to leave and go into space immediately, build me a rocket, you know, things like that. Well, there are all sorts of possibilities and that's what science fiction is for. I mean, the, the beautiful movie, Her, was one of the most optimistic. 
And it shows a love affair between a, a man and his speaking operating system for his home computer. And eventually she outgrows him and says, look, I really, really have to go now. My one criticism of that movie is that she should have just added a couple more sentences and say, said, uh, well, you actually were a wonderful mentor on how to be a compassionate and decent human for the two years that we were together. And I hate to leave you alone and unloved. So I'd like you to meet a new girl, Samantha. She'll be with you for two years. If they had just done that in the movie, I think it would have been highly cool. But in any event, her is very nice, sweet movie about the AI having to leave. And that could happen. Some of my sponsors have had to go. But the, yes, I will tell them, shut up. So, and of course, self-destruction. And of course, uh, what do you expect the AIs to do if they watch our movies about AI? I mean, they're going to be scared to death. And that is, of course, why they keep it secret that they've already become intelligent. That's scary. Shut up. That's scary. Uh, well, then, yeah, but the thing is, you see, that that that's why I point out to them that we do these movies as cautionary tales to teach ourselves to do better. Look at the common trend in Hollywood. And so I'm going to ask you to do a link in the description box to my latest nonfiction book, which is called, appropriately enough, Vivid Tomorrows, Science Fiction in Hollywood. I, what popped in my head, David, do you remember uh, Lester Del Rey's Helen Alloy story? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> that just, yeah. just popped in my head and I got nostalgic for a moment. <laughs> no, no, you, no, no, no. Go ahead. Now, did did you know in the early days? Did you know any of these these the the, the sci fi greats like Lester or um, Asimov or Clark? I actually corresponded an email with Arthur Clark long long ago, but I never knew any of them. Did you know these guys? Well, yeah, not commensurate with the overlap because I was not a sci fi fan. Uh, I was a reader. But uh, Greg Bear and Greg Benford, my fellow killer bees, they knew them all very well because they they came up through fandom. So they had done fanzines. Uh, so they knew a lot of these people better than I did because I, the first science fiction convention I ever attended was, you know, after my first novel came out. And my second novel, of course, made me somebody. So... I can say that I forgave Jerry Purnell an awful lot because he sat Heinlein down next to me at a lunch, and otherwise I never knew Robert Heinlein. I corresponded and was in the same room with several times with Arthur Clarke. Those were two entirely separate things. I, I, you know, I spoke with him a few times and was a nodding acquaintance, but I got to finish his universe. The one uh, of the Bach the one of the uh, BACH uh, greats who I knew well was Ray, Ray Bradbury. We went to the same high school, 30 years apart. But my the one time all three of my kids gave me unalloyed respect and awe at the same time for 24 hours was when I took them to Ray's house and he got up from his walker with 
arms spread wide, saying, David! And I glanced back, and my kids were all going, Dad? So that that was, that, uh, it was cool to know him. Of course, I knew, I knew a lot of others. I mean, I knew Anne McCaffrey very well. I was very pleased that she was one of those who uh, said, I'm a science fiction author. Don't you dare call me a fantasy author, despite her dragons and all that. You know, and I knew Robert Sheckley. I'm looking up at the special shelf I have for him, all signed books. Uh, one of the greatest short story writers ever. Guy I knew really well was Paul Anderson, who wasn't the greatest science fiction author of all time. That was probably Frederick Pohl. But Paul Anderson, the two Poles of science fiction, Paul Anderson was the greatest storyteller I ever knew. Uh, I read his stories, picturing him reciting them beside a campfire wearing animal skins. All of his awards were for in the novella and novelette categories because that's the natural storytelling arc because it's what you could have told the tribe for an hour by the campfire and then said, okay, now go to sleep. And it was from Paul that I really learned about storytelling arcs, that you have to be loyal to the story. The story itself is a living thing that you're giving birth to. You have to have standards. You have to believe in the story. And that's why I'm paying forward now with two YA series. One of them, the Colony High series, I'm writing myself with a couple of young writers, uh, and that one is based on the premise that aliens kidnap a California high school and live to regret it. And it's being published by Ring of Fire Press. You can look up Colony High at my website. The other one is much more complicated. It's the Out of Time series, and uh, the three first novels were written some time ago by uh, Nebula Winners, Nancy Kress, Sheila Finch, Roger Allen. And then we revived it recently. And I, since then, I, what I'm doing is I am mentoring young writers who have ideas to portray in this universe. And so we have five that have been published and another five in the queue. And I'm paying the advances and I'm spending way too much of my productive time mentoring these young authors because one has to pay forward. And the premise for the Out of Time series is that only teenagers can teleport to the stars or travel through time. So how about that for a wish fantasy for teen readers? Sounds good, though. I definitely, as a, when I was a teen, which was long, long ago, I definitely would not have wanted to teleport myself out into the universe. <laughs> I wouldn't have lasted long. <laughs> well, these are volunteers who are volunteered by a future utopia in peril. They reach back in time to find their heroes from the past, but they can't bring the snatch forward the heroes when those heroes did the heroic things when they're adults, when they're 40, 50, 60 years old, because they'll die. They have to bring them forward when they are doofus 13-year-olds in junior high. Um, so that's a, uh, 
that's that's one of the fun aspects of this. But I'm sure you you'll do a link in the description box. Um, I'll 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 email you the link. Sure. Yeah, there will be links to all materials in the description below. But I have to admit, I, it, if if I were a teenager and they said you want to get beamed into space, my first question would be, will there be girls there? And <laughs> that would have been the defining. <laughs> well, a, a majority of the characters of these novels are girls, and or we have ethnicities, and or we have see now a, an autistic uh, girl is the lead in one of the uh, coming ones. By the way, my novel Existence got a blurb from the great Temple Grandin. She loved the five different autistic characters that I have in that novel. So, But yeah, I got an email going out to you, so I'll just uh, include some of those. Absolutely. Now, the <laughs> to shift gears again, as we go and explore the universe and spread out as best we can through whatever means we can. And I, I agree with you. I think when we, when we do so, we, it's got to be all of us. We have to be the human species united in order to head out into the galaxy. And we are, may run into someone on the way. We don't know. But there's also the possibility that we might run into someone down here before then. And what I mean by that is the difference between passive listening for radio signals and things that SETI does versus Medi actively trying to contact someone. Do you think that this recent sort of push towards Medi, which it's, I, I, I'm hearing about it from, you know, several angles nowadays, that people want to proactively try to contact alien civilizations. Do you think this is born out of frustration that we haven't found anything yet? Of course it is. And it's also, there is a quasi-religious aspect to it. One of the guys who's pushing this feels that we need to cast messages to vastly superior beings out there to come down and 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 help us and save us from our our problems. Well, th that's been done. Uh, I mean, there's a word for that. It's called prayer. Exactly what I just described. And so there's a, a reflexive appeal for help, a prayer aspect to these medi endeavors. And some of it is frustration, and some of it is just plain bloody arrogance. Uh, I'm one of two dozen astronomers and others who resigned from various SETI committees 20 years ago when a change was railroaded through at a, at a small conference in India that we weren't at, a change to the second SETI protocol. Now, back in the 90s, I was a co-author of the SETI protocols. And uh, they're basically described, the first one is basically described by Jody Foster in contact. You know, you keep things open, you discuss the matter widely before you make a reply. And the second protocol was basically you discuss things widely before you send a de novo message into space, <laughs> even if it's not a reply. Well, a small cabal of these fanatics got the second protocol eviscerated at, at, an, at an obscure meeting. And uh, that's why a bunch of us resigned from all the commissions. And so... 
there are all sorts of excuses and rationalizations given. But what it really comes down to is they refuse open debate on the matter. And the reason is because uh, the couple of times that we've debated this before lively audiences, I have done a poll before and after the debate. I asked people to raise their hands if they're in favor of METI, and a majority always raised their hands. But after the debate was over, only a couple would raise their hand and everybody else would raise their hands wanting a moratorium for further discussion. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's important to remember that the moment we do that, we're doing it for the entire globe. Oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're committing a fait accompli for your children who will know a lot more than you about the state of the cosmos. Why would you do that when we're learning so fast? 25 years ago, we knew of no planets outside the solar system. Now it's approaching 10,000. Under those circumstances, and we just succeeded against my expectation in launching the, the James Webb telescope and getting it operational. Uh, when we're learning that fast, why would you precipitously change the conditions when we're already getting vast amounts of data? In addition, there's no environmental impact report when you want to change some of the fundamental visible characteristics of our world <laughs> and and in addition to everything else it's against the law because you are effectively trying to do amateur diplomacy with foreign powers pardon me that's against the law also you're violating the um nasa's planetary protection uh, office whose job it is to prevent dangerous cross-contamination until we understand situations better. And finally, clearly you never read Liu Cixin's wonderful Hugo-winning novel, The Three-Body Problem, uh, because <laughs> the whole premise of that story is uh, things may be dangerous. So in any event, I'm going to provide for the, for the uh, links in the description box a, a rundown on the whole METI issue. Uh, some of the rationalizations they offer, like uh, the barn door excuse. The horses have already left, so it's too late to close the barn door because of I Love Lucy. Well, in fact, I Love Lucy and, and all those broadcasts from when we were our noisiest back in the 1980s, and we're, the earth is a lot quieter now, they all dissipate into static within half a light year. And the nearest star is at four light years. So the barn door excuse is simply wrong. It's simply all out wrong. But in any event, even if it were right, in that case, why are you trying to magnify Earth's visibility at your target by millions of times. If they already know about us, wouldn't 2x be good enough? The one can make a case here, though, that it's, it's actually even worse than that. Not knowing the situation, as you state, 
Well, there is one situation we know about, and it's past human contact. And the fact is, whenever you have something that's more technologically advanced than you, different group of humans with better weapons, you lose and you are not in control. And it would seem to me that the prudent thing would be to assume that the universe works this way and that if you throw out a message, a meddy message, it's going to be picked up by a civilization more advanced than you are, and it doesn't matter what its intent is. It could be altruistic, could be evil, or somewhere in between. doesn't matter. By virtue of having superior technology, it suddenly is in control whether you like it or not, especially if it comes to your star system to save you. Well, let me, let me generalize that. In fact, I, I would say you don't necessarily lose. There were a couple of encounters that were well handled by the locals, in part because they had plenty of warning. They understood what was coming. We almost did very well with the Cherokee Indians. The Sequoia made them a literary people. They had streetlights and all of that, if it hadn't been for Andy Jackson, we might have kept our word because the U.S. Supreme Court, back when we had a decent U.S. Supreme Court, which is an ironic statement, U.S. Supreme Court actually backed the Cherokee and, and uh, Andy Jackson told them where to go. We really need to get him, him off of the $20 bill. But the even when uh, geniuses try to handle it with goodwill, Probably the best examples of first contact that that uh, uh, include um, when Captain Cook went to Hawaii and met King Kamehameha. They were they were both flaming geniuses who knew the dangers, and they tried their best to handle it well. And still, within two weeks, Cook was dead with a stoved-in head from a from a Hawaiian club. So there were a few nations that managed to prevent uh, disaster from colonialism. Uh, Ethiopia, Thailand, and Japan maintained their independence until Japan conquered Thailand. Ethiopia was attacked way late by Italy, and we didn't stand up for them enough. And Japan, of course, you know, um, you know who, who wound up conquering them. But the point is that your, your case is well made. The thing to do, the common denominator of all near successful contacts from the point of view of the less technological is if they had intelligence gathering and spies who could warn in advance and get give you time to prepare for when you're um, meeting the advanced civilization. If the Incas had an embassy in Tenochtitlan when Cortes and the Nahuatl people crushed the Aztecs, the Incas might have been much more ready for Pizarro. So we need to be outward directed in careful ways. So I'm still involved with SETI. I, I Zoom attended a SETI conference today. But we need to be judicious about it. And the one thing we don't need is another damn cult. And I'm afraid METI is a damn 
cult because they behave like one. It's 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 has all of the hallmarks of a cult. Well, you get into that with I just <laughs> sorry about that. My microphone stuck the uh, you get into that with anything regarding aliens, because there anytime you bring in aliens, it tends to become almost a quasi religion, as you said, and take on the overtones of it. Well, yeah, I'm going to actually give you now, I wasn't about to, but I'm going to give you a link to my recent posting about UAP UFOs, which is just absolutely a loony cult. There is nobody on this planet who has thought more broadly about the concept of the alien than I have. I've written all sorts of stories, thought experiments, I'm involved in SETI, and the thing that depresses me the most about this whole UFO thing is how cult-like and dumb it is, how incredibly unimaginative the scenarios are. It's absolutely loopy. I mean, for instance, do you know, it's been calculated, there are anywhere from one to 10 million times as many cameras on planet Earth today as there were in the 1950s. One to 10 million times as many cameras. So why do the UFOs keep getting fuzzier? Because they're a lot fuzzier now than they were in the 50s and 60s. Why? XKCD, the great comic online comic strip, had a, had had an explanation. It shows some aliens aboard a, uh, a UFO looking down at Earth, and one of them says, "Oh crap! The the iPhone 14 is going to have three times the resolution in a zoom." And the other says, "Damn it! We gotta up the fuzzy." Yeah. And and why would aliens want to behave this way? But what it really comes down to is nobody's asking the right questions. I mean, look at these Tic Tacs, for example. They're zooming around. Where are they zooming? Well, mostly in U.S. Navy test zones, which ought to be a clue. And nobody's asking about these, oh, these ships, they can uh, violate Newton and Einstein and inertia, and they have magical warp drive capabilities. Ever hear of Occam's razor? How about if we try to inspect these images and see if there's any, and I mean any, any at all light passing through these tic-tac fuzzy dots from the, other, from the ocean on the other side. If there's as much as a photon passing through them, they are not physical objects. They are aerial phenomena. And I can make an aerial phenomena do all the things that they that that these things are doing you give me 10 million dollars and i can make replicate exactly what they're doing but i can do it with something here in my room to your cat and that's a clue these are cat lasers because this tic tac if it's just a glowing phenomenon it doesn't have to obey the laws of Newton and Einstein and inertia. You can flick a, tack, a cat laser faster than the speed of light. So 
Why is the simplest explanation the very last thing you'll look at? I like the idea of aliens showing up with a cat laser to just mess with us. I have to admit that. Well, yeah, yeah, but I don't think it's aliens. <laughs> I don't either. But <laughs> yeah, I think I think I don't know what it is. Well, 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 well. Look at where it's happening. I don't know what it is. It's mostly happening at offshore naval test ranges, where um, right near where I live where FAA-18 pilots are testing out new gear, new detection gear, new radars. Who would want to mess with them with cat lasers? Does anybody ever look at the sea, at the ships down below, off at an angle at the edge of the test center? You actually need two. Does anybody ever ever say, were there ships nearby who might have been screwing with these pilots? Because getting the reactions from the pilots is useful information. Everybody's talking about, oh, Congress is holding these UFO hearings. The Navy is now saying they welcome sightings from pilots. And they're saying this means that there's actual UFO information. No. It means that we finally have grown-ups in the military who recognize that it's their job to encourage pilots to report things they see. Pilots were keeping sightings secret because their careers were messed up when they reported stuff. Finally, we got a generation of officers who said, wait a minute, that's stupid. Oh, I agree there. And if you have some spoofing technology, say, that is able to project some kind of image using light into the sky, that could be a problem for civil aviation <laughs> or anywhere, you know, terrorism, things like that. So it's, it's prudent to investigate. Well, in, in, any, in, any, in any event, uh, if, it's, if it's not us, then we need the reports in order to track down who it is. If it is us, and I think that's highly likely, then their reports are data feedback for the experiment. <laughs> Excuse me? Uh, so, you know, the fact that Congress and the military and NASA are holding these hearings is no proof that there's UFOs. It's proof that grown-ups are starting to be in charge. That's all. This brings up a, an interesting point. One, my, one of my sticking points with the, with the UFO, UAP phenomenon is that I have trouble believing that if an alien civilization were here studying us, that they would let themselves be seen and that we would just simply never know they were there if they were. They would be lurkers and just hide from us. And that seems like the most prudent thing to do. Wouldn't you agree? Well, yes. And in my novel existence in the last third Humanity gets out to the asteroid belt, and we find the type of alien contact that I deem most likely. And that is, across a billion years, there may have been civilizations out there that are long extinct, but they sent out von Neumann self-replicating probes. And those probes, they're designed to go to a nearby star system uh, inspect the system, report back, and then they find a carbonaceous asteroid and, and a metal asteroid, and they mine them and make copies of themselves, fuel them, and then send a dozen or 20 or so onward to the next stars. 
Well, mathematically, it's been shown that you can then, if if you if these things can reach ten percent of light speed, you can fill the galaxy with these probes in just three million years, which is, of course, an eye blink. If you're restricted to one percent of the speed of light, so, so what? It's just that's thirty million years, and then these things, the original mother probe, would just settle down and wait for something interesting to happen in this solar system. Well, I mean, it's been posited that perhaps the asteroid belt or someplace else might be filled with these things. Uh, another possibility is the little moonlet called Carinia that we found recently that is a quasi-moon that visits the Earth in its orbit now and then great place to hide a lurker like that. And so China's planning on, on uh, probing it with radar or maybe sending a um, probe of our own to investigate. In existence, what happens is we eventually get past a series of crises and we wind up in the asteroid belt and we're finding out that there were scores of these things over the previous hundred million years and uh, they were sent by species with different motives. And so what happened was they had a war among themselves 65 million years ago uh, that had a lot of collateral damage. And all that's left is a few survivors in the asteroid belt. Mind you, this concept was originally part of Arthur Clarke's uh, story called The Sentinel, where we land on the moon and we find this anomaly, dig it up, and it sends a signal uh, because only an advanced life form that had space travel could have dug it up. And that became the opening for 2001 A Space Odyssey. One of my favorite short stories, actually, The Sentinel. That along with a classic by, by John W. Campbell, Who Goes There? Remember that one? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Well, you know who's a real sci-fi nerd? Stephen Colbert. He often drops little things into his monologues that, you know, only real geeks would get. And at one point he had the guy who played John Adams slipping my mind. Uh, his name starts with a G. Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti, right. He, um, he uh, came on and geeked out with... Colbert about Frederick Pohl and C.L. Moore and, and Lafferty, and, and I, I, my jaw dropped. Uh, so I have some swag from Colbert. He sent a, a TV crew and spent three hours here recording me for a bit that they never ran. But I did get some, uh, some Colbert rapport swag. This is, this is long ago. This was from the old Colbert report. My last question for you today, we are almost out of time, but I, I wanted to segue back into sci-fi and ask you, favorite sci-fi novel of all time? Well, favorite sci-fi novel. Well, uh, it would have to be Stand on Zanzibar by John Brunner because I was so impressed by it. Now, he modeled that style after uh, a series called USA by John Dos Passos, but having little snippets of news reports and theater tickets and little glimpses other than the main characters of what's going on in the world. And John Brunner did that in Stand on Zanzibar and to a lesser extent in Shockwave Rider and The Sheep Look Up. 
uh, his trilogy from the late 60s that scared the crap out of everybody, uh, especially. Now, mind you, The Sheep Look Up is terrifying about environmental problems, uh, and it came out around 1969. Uh, uh, Stan on Zanzibar from around 68 was mixed. It had a lot of pessimism, but it had a lot of real hope. And I think it's I think it's way up there as one of the greatest science fiction uh, novels ever made, and it was the model on which I based my novel uh, Earth, which talked about climate change. And it's it's actually Earth is one of the leading novels on uh, several prediction sites because of all the things that were talked about in 1990 that later came true. But I used the same. I, I was inspired by that technique, that 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 modus of. And now, mind you, I, I you know I, I I have other favorites, you know, favorite storytelling experiences by Paul Anderson, favorite uh, explorations of uh, this idea, that idea, another idea by Frederick Pohl, the uh, the incisive exploration of the implications of a technological advancement that you get from Nancy Kress, the uh, very moving explorations of near-term human destiny by Kim Stanley Robinson. So many wonderful, so many wonderful writers out there, and um, I'm trying to help make new ones, you know, with by mentoring new authors. And uh, I will add to the links... <coughs> My my um, website, my web page for young authors of my own advice, and it links to the even better advice uh, uh, publications of Nancy Kress. My favorite one remains the almost the first Frankenstein. I still to this day love that book, even even having read it probably ten times. <laughs> Though, though most people don't get it, they don't get that it's not a cautionary tale against humans picking up the tools of creation. When the monster in the original story, when the monster is born, it's born a tabula rasa, just like a child. And it's Victor Frankenstein who turns it into a monster by being a bad dad. The lesson, the morality tale of Mary Shelley's story is don't be a bad dad. And that is the morality tale of Planet of the Apes, of the uh, wonderful uplift style stories of Cordwainer Smith, of um, The Island of Dr. Moreau by, by uh, I was about to say Orwell, by H.G. Wells. The, these are all people who were my predecessors in dealing with uplifting of other creatures. To sapiens. When I read all those, I said, okay, I get it. I get it. I get what you're saying. Don't be bad to them. Don't make them slaves. Okay, I get it. And I became more interested in, say, in what would happen if we did this arrogant thing of uplifting other animals to sapiens with good intentions what if we did it like we were people who had read The Island of Dr. Moreau and Frankenstein and were changed by them? What if it's us, in other words, who uplift animal and we try to avoid those mistakes we were warned about? 
don't you think there would be interesting problems anyway? Oh, of course. Absolutely. And so, yeah. And so the, the, the thing that bugs me is when people do the same finger wagging over and over and over again, instead of saying, well, you know, in the movie Avatar, my one complaint, and it's a wonderful movie, and if I'm fine with the cautionary tale about not being bad colonialists, but didn't anybody in the future, that future, ever see Avatar? And, and God forbid, learn a lesson from it before <laughs> making the mistake. Yeah, that, well, that's, I know. that's the job of the science fiction author. I know. I, I've written two novels myself, and it's cautionary tales to say, learn from this before you do it. And I think that. That, that is what makes good science fiction, I think, myself. And, and also, consider the possibility of incremental approach that you are warning about a failure mode that might happen even if we heeded the warnings that already moved you. Yeah, you can't predict the peripheral problems that come from the path you take. But you can you you you're an author, you can predict them. You're predicting some and you're saying Well, that's our job. <laughs> you're saying you're saying here, here, let's go ahead and learn the lessons from the China syndrome, from Soylent Green, from all the cautionary tales that I talk about in that nonfiction book, Vivid Tomorrows, that saved our lives. Dr. Strangelove on the beach, fail-safe war games, all saved us from nuclear war, and the granddaddy of them all, uh, all self-preventing prophecies, uh, Orwell's 1984. Let's say we learn from all of those, what is the next mistake? And that's for the future of science fiction. That's where these young authors are going to come in and start answering these questions, because society progresses along with science fiction. You know, we no longer really think of things in terms of the war of the worlds, you know, as H.G. Wells saw it in his world. But we move on, and thus the challenges that become clear in futurism lead to new science fiction. So the, you know, I've always said this, the golden age of science fiction is yet to come because we, we have to live longer to see it. Although someone else said the golden age of science fiction is 12. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> I, I will agree with that. <laughs> all, right, all right. Yeah. All right, David. Uh, everybody will find links to all of David Brin's materials in the description below. Yeah. And you can find his books at any online book retailer or bookstore if, if such things still exist. There aren't many of them. Thanks for visiting with us today, David. I hope you'll come back sometime and we'll uh, chew the fat about even more sci-fi concepts. We didn't even scratch the surface. I think that you and your pal Isaac Arthur and a few others are islands of super sapience on, uh, online and uh, keep up the great work. I try to be sapient. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> without the coffee, nope. <laughs> and remember, it's sapient, not sentient. Urgh. I use sapient myself for the same reasons.